Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest in the OIES podcast series, being brought to you by the Energy Transition Programme. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing the future of nuclear energy, which is the topic of our latest Oxford Energy Forum, which is published in February 2024, and is available on the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies website. My name is James Henderson, a Distinguished Research Fellow at OIES, and I'm talking today, which is the 15th of January, with Dr. Adnan Shihabeldin, who is also a Fellow at the Institute, about three of the articles in the forum written by him and some of his colleagues. Adnan, uh, welcome to the OIES podcast series. Hello. Lovely to have you back again. Your articles and those of your colleagues are, are absolutely fascinating. And of course, before we get into the detail of those articles, though, I'd like us, if we can, just to have a quick overview of your thoughts about the future of nuclear energy, particularly in view of the positive news out of COP28, where nuclear was included in the final concluding statements for the first time. How important do you think that was and how does that provide a context for our conversation today? Well, I think including nuclear in uh, the COP28 uh, statement and before that also in the G20, in both cases for the first time in many decades, I believe, is pivotal in my view. And therefore, uh, it paves the way to carry out the plans that are being considered or being implemented by many countries as part of their transition to net zero energy. As you know, nuclear energy has been around for over 70 years, and it's mature. It's uh, basically emission in terms of CO2, emission-free and it has proven itself, despite the accidents that happened, two major accidents in 75 years or so, in terms of the safety, even if you factor in those accidents, you are talking about one of the safest. And so you have, on the one hand, environmental credentials, safety credentials. It's a 24-7, 365, reliable, dispatchable power. And that's why in many countries that have implemented the program, and it's very clear in the IPCC reports and in IAEA and many other organizations, they don't see how we can get to net zero emission without expanding nuclear power by at least a factor of two, if not three. Well, that's fascinating because you know, your papers are about both the future of nuclear, but particularly the future of, of small modular reactors and whether they can be the catalyst behind some of the, some of the growth. Can you first tell us, What's meant by a small modular reactor and where, where you think they're most applicable? Yeah, I mean, a small modular reactor is part of a new generation of reactors that are called advanced design reactors, which incorporate a lot of new features, whether it's on the economic side, on the safety side, and so on. The characteristic of SMRs, small modular reactor, is that their power rating, their capacity does not exceed around. 300 megawatt installed, 300 megawatt electric, that would be the maximum before you go into other type of reactors. And, and basically, they are more or less, they can be used for power generation, just like large reactors, which are the dominant ones so far that are 1,000 megawatt electric or 1,500 megawatt electric. And, and so SMRs are considered part of the third generation plus or fourth generation, depending whether they're evolutionary design or intermediate design. And they can be used in addition to power generation. They can be used for heat application, for hydrogen generation, 
And also they have the feature that they can be placed in remote areas without too much infrastructure and just hooked up to the grid or to supply energy to small communities in remote areas. So they combine all of the feature of advanced reactors and at the same time, they can serve in a better way broader regions, broader applications, and they're considered also even safer for a variety of reasons. What's the challenge in making these nuclear reactors smaller? I mean, are there some specific technical challenges in terms of reducing the size of the reactors or not? Well, there are two types of small modular reactors designs currently. One is just scaling down the current light water reactors that are cold by water. And you generate steam, and the steam either directly or indirectly run the turbines and produces electricity. So it's a scaled-down version where you simplify the design and you put almost everything in, in a vessel. So you put even the heat exchangers and all of these, you put them in one vessel, integrated, simplify things, and they're smaller. So that's the, that's not challenging. That can be done. In fact, large reactor grew from small reactors in the 1950s and 60s. And the reason they were scaled to 1,000 megawatt is because the economy of scale dictated that. The difference now when you're scaling down is that you scale them down so that you'll be able to produce them, manufacture them at the manufacturer site, at the vendor site, and produce them in, like in an assembly line, and then ship the whole thing and install it. And that's much better than trying to erect a large reactor, especially in a foreign country or a country that doesn't have the infrastructure. Now, the second type is called revolutionary or evolutionary designs. And these are have their own challenges in the sense that the designs have been not tested commercially. And therefore, the regulatory process is going to take longer time, and uh, even the cost initially will be much more per kilowatt hour installed. So uh, both SMRs evolutionary, just scaling down, and the innovation or evolutionary are on the market, something like 80 of them, but they have different challenges. Okay, so you mentioned sort of costs there. I mean, how do the economics of SMRs stack up compared to your typical large-scale nuclear reactor. What are the key differences and what are the implications of those differences? I just mentioned earlier is that the reason nuclear reactors were scaled up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, standardized at 1,000 or 1,500, is the economy of scale because you are building them on the site and it was much better to build a larger reactor. So that's the economy of scale. Here we are talking about the economy of multiples. What does that mean is that you produce them in an assembly line, okay? They are smaller. So if, if you want 1,000 megawatts, you need to order 10 of them. If each one of them is 100 megawatt, ship them and install them. And the flexibility in ordering one at a time gives you an advantage because you don't have the financial risk exposure of a 1,000 megawatt. You, you're talking about uh, exposure to 100 megawatt at a time. And when you build it and when you're done, and then you add another one at the same site and so on. So it's it's gonna be a balance between competition, between the economy of scale of a large reactor. On the other hand, there are advantages of uh, smaller reactors 
in terms of lower initial capital cost. So you lower your financial risks initially and the quality control becomes much better because, you know, I give the example always, you can buy a car from the dealer manufactured uh, by Mercedes and you can rely on the assembly line quality control or you can order parts and build them in your garage and you run the risk, things will not work out very well. And that's sort of the competition between the two. Okay, well, that's interesting. We'll come to the kind of whole question of kind of quality and, and safety uh, later on in the podcast. Let me come back to a different point. You, you made the point about how SMRs can be located in remote places, can be, you know, can supply local communities. Are they particularly useful in developing economies? Or, or is there a critical level of expertise and infrastructure that's actually needed before you install an SMR? No, actually, in, in uh, SMR suits developing countries or developing economies much better. And, you know, I use the example of building in an assembly line versus building it in your garage. And, and the extra advantage there is that when you place your order, you can probably have it in place within a year ready because it's been manufactured in an assembly line, like when you order a car. And so this would be very suitable for developing countries because they can order it from an assembly line of one of the manufacturers. And it's simpler. And it can be, especially if it's combined with fuel uh, services, both the front end and the back end. And I'll, maybe I can explain that later. But, but basically, it requires less know-how. You don't need to have that sophisticated engineering and regulatory capabilities in the country where it is being used. In the same way, you don't need the same capability of Boeing or uh, Airbus engineering know-how in a country that wants to use an Airbus or a Boeing aeroplane. You need some know-how, but you don't need the know-how of how to assemble the Boeing, how to do this. So for a, for a developing country, a developing economy, quality of the engineers would be you know, more simple of, to run it safely. That's basically in a nutshell. Okay. Let's talk about then, the, the, we're going to talk about the back end uh, later on, but let's talk about the front end of the, of the fuel cycle, and particularly the fuel cycle. So, you know, your Boeing analogy is an interesting one. I mean, uh, it's fine to get an aeroplane, but getting some jet fuel is pretty easy. It's a, there's a global market for jet fuel. Getting some uranium for uh, some uranium and fuel rods for your uh, nuclear power plant, perhaps a little bit more difficult. So what about the front end then? I mean, how does a developing country get involved in supplying the fuel it needs for its SMR, or does it just rely on the manufacturer to do that as well? Well, there will be a variety of models. Uh, the easiest would be to initially, at least, have the fuel supplied by the vendor. And usually fuel supply for reactors, whether large or small, would last you at least a year, usually three years, depending on uh, how do you replace the fuel. In current large reactors, you replace one-third of the fuel every year. That's sort of so. So in SMR, probably you don't need to change the fuel except once every three years or five years. And that makes it easier because in a jet, you have to supply the fuel every time that the plane takes off. In this particular case, you just have to assure the supply in the beginning and have agreement to have the supply available. And to assure supply, the International Atomic Energy Agency agreed to a proposal and built what's called the International Fuel Bank. That's basically to assure countries that wants to use nuclear power that 
there will be not be interruption for non-commercial reasons. And you can rely on this international fuel bank that's now in Kazakhstan under the supervision of the IEA. And many countries helped us, including Kuwait and the Emirates, helped to develop that one, U.S. and European Union. So I would say it's much secure, the fuel, and there is no shortage of rich uranium. And, you know, you don't need to go to 20%, which usually SMR would work with 3 to 5%. Some of the new design require 20%, but uh, most of the, the, the front runner, let me say, run more or less on the same enrichment level, which is available. And you don't have to stick with the vendor that provided you with the reactor. There are other suppliers available. And we expect with SMR penetrating the market, there will be a sort of a front end market, much more resilient and flexible than the current limited to three or four or five suppliers, maybe as many as 10 or 15 will be available. And regional front end supplies could be uh, manufacturing, could be developed easily. So you have one in the Middle East, one in Africa, one in Asia, and one in America and so on. Okay, excellent. Well, look, let's move on a little bit and talk a bit about the topic of the second paper in the forum that your group has written about. And this is about safety and security, which, of course, is always a topic that comes up when nuclear is mentioned. Let's start with safety. I mean, you kind of touched on at the beginning of the podcast that there really haven't been that many nuclear accidents. But are nuclear power plants getting safer over time? And how would you capture the safety issue? Well, as I said, there were only two major accidents, Chernobyl and Fukushima. Three Mile Island accident was actually no accident whatsoever. It just uh, it was the first large-scale incident. And beyond just the two major accidents, uh, the industry and the regulators and the manufacturers of nuclear have learned from many incidents, not just those accidents, and they have factored the lesson learned into the designs so that there is less chance of a, what we call a trigger for the accident, what causes the accident. So there is less chance for that happening, for example, losing the cooling water and so on. So that has been factored in. The other thing is that have been also important in the safety is the designs themselves have become simpler, especially, as I said, in the SMRs. They are much simple to design and operate, and that reduces the chance of accidents. So both factoring in the lessons learned and the internal characteristic of the design being simpler, that reduces the probability. The more important factor is that suppose there is a serious accident, although it is less probable to happen, but suppose it happens, the amount of radioactivity that will be released per SMR would be, let's say, one-tenth if it was 100 megawatt versus 1,000 megawatt. So, so you're talking about an accident, although it's similar nature, but its kind of strength is one-tenth. So that makes them safer. You can design the exclusion zone to be one-tenth area, everything around it. So these are the two major factors that makes SMRs better. Any advanced reactor, the design is simpler. You have factored in uh, the lessons learned and then the amount of radioactivity that could be released in a, in a very serious accident is much less. And just on that point about SMRs, I mean, they're safer because, as you described earlier, the, the whole kind of mechanism is within one vessel and so therefore, you know, that, that's a sort of safer design, is it? Yeah, that, that's one. But there are other reactors, SMR designs, where they have now built in 
what they call inherent safety features or passive safety feature. What does that mean? Means that should there be an accident, you have the core needs to shut down. And typical reactors can down their shutdown is mechanical. And uh, you need electrical power to drop in the control rods. Uh, now, the new designs are such that you use basic laws of physics like gravity. You don't need mechanical intervention. So, the re or you could use the property of the liquids that are being molten salt, for example, if it's used as a coolant in some of the design. So, you use uh, physics principles to deal with the emergency on their own. So you don't need intervention. Now, remember in Fukushima, one of the main problem, the reactor shut down originally, and then after 20 minutes, the tsunami hit, which they were not counting on, and basically cut the whole electricity supply from outside and inside. And they, they had no electricity to run the cooling water pumps. And so the reactor heated and you had the accident. Here you don't need to run emergency core cooling or any of that sort because the reactor itself is designed to use basic principles of physics to shut it down and what we call cold shutdown. That means ease the power down to zero and keep everything cool without intervention. You could use gravity and the property of chemicals, you use these things without having to use power and mechanical. So that's that's called major uh, advantage. Okay, let's move on then and talk about security and other safeguards. I mean, if SMRs become more prevalent across the world, what is the risk that you you know there there is a security issue around nuclear fuel, around the whole process, the risks of terrorism, etc.? I mean, how do you see that emerging as a problem or not? Well, it, it, it does represent a challenge of its own in the sense that if you are deploying those SMRs in remote areas, both for safeguard, which means the IEA has to come and inspect that you haven't done anything to divert nuclear material, or in terms of security that maybe uh, some non-state actors put their hand on the reactor. But again, the fact that you're dealing with one, you know, if you put a reactor of this sort in a remote area, it's going to be about 50 megawatt, 100 megawatt, or could be even 10 megawatt. And the fuel itself inside is not easy to get to and to treat it to get the radioactivity of it because some of these uh, fuel materials are designed that you cannot break them easily like the ones like high temperature reactors. But when you put all of this together, you ask yourself, is there a chance that non-state actors could get hold of a reactor in a remote area more or less? If it's more, then you kick in the other factor that helps you. The amount of nuclear material inside is so small that it really will not be easy uh, to collect from so many places enough. But I, I, I should not say that, you know, something that's easy. You really need to have enough security in terms of transportation to the remote site, in terms of the use within the uh, internal site. And that those are challenges are being factored in by the IAEA in terms of the regulation and helping to have more regulation. In fact, I just received the new IAEA guidelines 
or regulation, including security and safety for SMRs in particular. And the advantage here is that not every country would need to have its own regulation because now you are harmonizing the uh, regulation worldwide. This didn't happen in the, light re in the large reactors, but now we have learned how to make the IEA something of an international regulator. Some countries would not like that, but it's necessary. Okay, well, look, time marches on, and we're, we're kind of working our way through the podcast, and we're getting towards the end. So let me address one other major issue, which is obviously always a criticism of nuclear energy, which is about waste. So if we have more SMRs, is the waste question going to be a bigger issue as there's more waste generated around the world? Or is there some kind of central disposal industry that's going to develop to deal with this proliferation of nuclear waste? Let me just address the question of waste first in general. I think we all know, especially those in the industry, that nuclear waste is not an issue, technical issue. There are technical solutions. The problem is that those technical solutions were not factored in, in the planning from the beginning. That means that you did not plan permanent disposal, intermediate disposal as part of your project. You relied on the state, and the state promised you, I'm talking now the US or Europe, and the state promised you they will take care of the interim this repository for the waste to some extent, but not uniformly. And they were hitting political obstacles to deal with the permanent storage. After 75 years, we're beginning to see that what's called geological repository being built and in place. In Finland, for example, are almost, I think next year or this year, they will inaugurate their geological repository for their nuclear waste, high-level radioactive waste. Sweden is not far behind. If you want to criticize, as a nuclear scientist, if you want to criticize the nuclear industry, is that the nuclear industry run with the front end and didn't bother working out the details on the back end. Now they have learned their lessons. So if we have a country now that wants to go to SMR and a vendor offers them an SMR, they must ask the vendor to work with them in developing intermediate and permanent uh, storage of the waste before they sign in. If they don't, then we will be repeating the mistakes that we have done over 70 years, which is to go ahead, build, use, and then worry about the waste. Now, the cost of all of that is trivial. Usually, currently in most countries, per kilowatt hour, you pay about 5 to 10% of what you pay for the kilowatt hour into a fund to deal with the nuclear waste. But the problem is that you don't know when that will happen. In the case of SMRs, that should be upfront, and that's what we call for in our paper. And that's what the IEA is calling for, and many people are calling for. And this brings in the possibility of, for the developing countries, like in Africa or Asia, they want to use SMR, is to work with the IEA and build a regional geological repository for the waste right from the beginning, before they start deploying them on a large scale. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. If a developing country asks me, should we buy SMRs? I said, before you buy the SMRs, make sure not only to have the front end is taken care of, but have the back end is taken care of right from the beginning. Factor it in your project, whatever solution. 
you know, there's only one country currently legally can take the back end, and that's Russia. And that's why Russia, over the last five, ten years, managed to corner the market for new reactors because they promised Egypt and Turkey and other countries they will take care of their nuclear waste and ship it back to Russia. And that that's of the problem for the countries that are, you know, building those reactors. But there are, you know, U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, manufacturer have not offered that yet, but they're beginning to think that that must be the case. So you really need the user and the vendor countries to work together right from the beginning. And so you anticipate that there will be a series of regional storage hubs which will be put together by countries that are using SMRs in partnership with the vendors who are selling them the technology. Is that, is that what, how you see it evolving? Yes, seeing it that way and with the supervision of the International Atomic Energy Agency in order to make sure that they will be securely carried out within protocols of MPT and safeguards. Okay. And, I mean, are there, are there different technologies for storage, for waste disposal, for SMRs, or is it exactly the same process as for the major nuclear plants? In terms of the ultimate solution, they are similar. But, of course, to prepare the preparation for the ultimate disposal will depend on the reactor design and the fuel design. Some of the new fuels, you know, they are not like the current fuels of the light water reactors in terms of uranium oxide that have been enriched. Maybe they are covered, coated with pellets. They may be metals. They may be... uh, even completely different. I mean, the fuel may be molten salt. And so in the preparation, there will be some new technologies that need to be built in. But this is for processing it and preparing it into solid material to be encased by protective layers and then become the same. Once you do the processing, then it becomes the same. So for the evolutionary SMRs, no difference. For the revolutionary or innovative SMRs, there is going to be some work to be done and developed and regulation in the handling of the waste from once it's released from the reactor to until it's ready to go into permanent deep geological repository. Okay. Um, well, look, we're getting right towards the end now. So let me just ask one final question. I mean, you, you've talked about um, the potential for there being new players in this in this industry and a kind of a more a regional manufacturing. Now we're talking about regional waste disposal. What is the business opportunity you think here? And which are the companies at the moment that are looking to exploit that? And, and where do you see new companies emerging, if you like? You will start with the traditional manufacturer of the fuel and traditional companies and firms handling the waste. Uh, and these are mostly in Russia, Japan, Europe, and the United States. But we will see emerging in countries in the Middle East, like United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. I would envision that between them and Turkey and other around them, uh, Eurasia, they will both work on the front end and on the back end. I, you know, that would be one region. And there is need and there is investment capabilities or facilities and the geological formations for permanent solution. So that's one region. I would see North Africa or some of the African deserts countries, maybe South Africa would be uh, qualified. But it will depend who will actually invest in planning and deploying those. One or two uh, countries with only one or two reactors, that would not justify a regional program. 
I'd see the Middle East and Africa, and of course, Southeast Asia would be another third, third market. And that's where uh, the, the companies like in Japan and Korea that are dealing with the front end and back end will, will collaborate in setting up new companies in those regions for that purpose. Okay, well, look, thanks very much. We're at the end of our time now. Adnan, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for that that kind of overview of the of the future of SMRs. It certainly looks like a, a much more positive future, particularly after off COP28, as we talked about. Look out for the Oxford Energy Forum on nuclear, which will be on our website from February 2024 onwards. There'll be another edition of the Oxford Energy podcast series in a week or so's time, so look out for that as well. But with that, Adnan, thank you again for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please take care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programs, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.